Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network's African American Studies channel. I am your host, Adam McNeil, a PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today we have on the podcast Dr. Ian Roxborough-Smith, who teaches North American and Global History at the University of Fraser Valley and Douglas College in British Columbia. Shout out to Canada. We are featuring his new book, published this year uh, by the University of Illinois Press, entitled Black Public History in Chicago, Civil Rights Activism from World War II into the Cold War Era. And so, welcome to the show, Dr. Ian Roxborough-Smith. Thanks, Adam, for having me. And just please please call me Ian throughout. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, believe me, I, you know, it's one of those funny things where I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a Southern kid and it's like a Southern American kid and it's like, you know, you got to make sure to give people their titles, Adam. And I'm like, I have that in my head. So I have like, I will always let people tell me like, yo, I'm not with that doctor stuff. I am Ian. I am insert whatever. So you hear that mom? I know you're listening. So Ian said it. So, so just, ju- just, just putting that out there. <laughs> so, um, so, so what a great way to begin. Um, so, um, before we get before we get into the con uh, the contents of uh, Black public history in Chicago, Ian, um, would you be able to give us a bit of a, the story of how you uh, how you got to this particular book? Um, because you know you're uh, as we talked before, you know you're a Canadian guy, you know out in Vancouver. So how did a Vancouver guy slide on over to Chicago and get engaged with with this phenomenal history? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of people when they hear that, I just uh, published a book on uh, African-American history in Chicago. They're like, how did you end up doing that? And, um, you know, it's kind of a long-winded story. Uh, I'll try to be as brief as I can, but it, you know, it connects with sort of like an honest intellectual engagement and interest that I've always had in African-American history and especially the history of sort of the middle of the 20th century and the civil rights and anti-racist struggles uh, of those periods, um, you know, in part because they relate so much to, you know, what's going on today uh, in the world and in America. And, um, you know, so uh, when I was an undergrad, I was really fortunate to uh, to meet uh, a veteran uh, elder of the civil rights movement who uh, coincidentally uh, retired to my hometown of Vancouver. His name's Jack O'Dell, and he worked really closely with Dr. King uh, in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And before that, he'd been involved in the Merchant Marines and actually a member of the Communist Party of the United States uh, for a period of time. Uh, so he was on, you know, the very radical left of the political spectrum. And uh, when he worked with Dr. King, he was one of the chief fundraisers uh, in the movement uh, through the early 60s. Uh, when the FBI went after the movement, he was one of the people who was singled out uh, and had to leave SCLC for a time. And he joined um, the editor board of Freedom Ways magazine in New York. Uh, and so when I was doing my master's program, 
a uh, number of years ago, I, uh, I worked on a thesis about the history of Freedom Ways magazine. And um, I noticed when I was working on that project uh, that one of the other editors that he worked with uh, initially with the magazine or the journal <clears throat> was a woman named Margaret Burroughs, um, uh, who was the first arts editor of Freedom Ways magazine. And I noticed that she left the magazine after a short time. Uh, and you know, I always wondered what she what she did. Um, so when I went on to my PhD studies, uh, I went to the University of Toronto, uh, and my supervisor there, uh, Rick Halpern, uh, is a scholar of um, Black Chicago of. Um, uh, working class movements in Chicago through the middle of the 20th century. And he wrote about um, especially uh, meatpacking workers and uh, the United Packing House Workers of America and sort of the interracial activism that came out of the 1930s and 40s. The meatpacking workers were among the sort of most advanced uh, workers uh, in terms of uh, advocating against uh, racism and, and for civil rights through the middle decades of the 20th century, probably one of the most progressive unions in the country at that time. Uh, and he said, well, you should you should study Chicago more. I mean, lots of people were working on the black left in New York. Um, why don't you uh, work on Chicago? And I already knew about Margaret Burroughs and that she had these connections to Chicago and uh, sort of just followed her uh her life story and the sort of um, work that she was doing with her friends and colleagues on what was what I viewed as effectively black public history. It was public history activism. It was building museums, um, curriculum for public schools, um, supporting local history organizations and societies that were working on getting um, black history uh, into the public sphere. Um, and I viewed a lot of this as, you know, a form of civil rights activism because it was a period in American history, of course, where there was a lot of repression. Um, it was the Cold War, uh, the early Cold War still, especially anyone who was advocating civil rights, no matter what their political um, ideology was, was often viewed as um you know, potentially treasonous or um, uh, often uh, surveyed by the state. Um, and so, you know, uh, wanted to understand, you know, what people were doing to kind of endure that moment. And one of the sort of main ideas in my book is that um, people worked on public history as a way to um, sort of negotiate that moment uh, in American history, but also to make an impact on social change and to uh, advocate um, for, you know, a form of civil rights. And and that is advocating for black public history um, in the public realm. And so, uh, you know, this was a work that I did ultimately for a PhD dissertation, and then I've revised it in this book. So hopefully, it's a it's a bit better now that it's in a book form. So yeah, that's my long winded uh, explanation of how I got into this. <laughs> well, hey, I, be- I truly believe that um, our, our listeners are definitely going to enjoy um, that they are enjoying uh, you know this particular story because it's you know it always is uh, remarkable and, and pretty cool to hear about how people get into the topics that they ultimately, you know, go into that, you know, spark their interest for the entireties of their whole careers. Like it's like like multiple decades. Um, And so to me, um, this particular story um, was really cool because it, you know, you spoke about it briefly uh, just now, public history uh, uh, and and education and and really also collective memory too, uh, a portion that's, ingrained in black resistance. Um, and, and so I never thought about it and considering the particular era at which this is occurring, war two into the cold war, 
that is just like changing everything because right the cold war you know if you don't have you know um the 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 technological advances of the late 40s and going into the 50s with um with how technology is changing and televisions and such like that you know they some people make the claim that the cold war would not have and and really the black gains in American society couldn't have happened without the Cold War um, because showing to the world like what's going on, but also internally about how, you know, black activism, about how black activism is so, you know, um, so formulated with, you know, the education struggles. I had a, a someone on the program earlier um, um, in the last couple of weeks, Hillary Green, for her book, Educational Reconstruction, about how education and democracy and citizenship are ingrained with each other. And I see definite, definite um, uh, uh, connections to your work here with uh, Black Public History in Chicago. So definitely big ups on that one. Mm, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, f- I feel like there, there's a lot of connections to be made in terms of like, you know, progressive education activism that was going on, you know, from throughout this entire period. And it connects to a lot of, um, you know, scholarship that's out there, um, you know, in different fields, not just history, but, um, you know, public history, educational studies and um, uh, African-American studies, uh, you know, critical race studies. Um, I think there's a lot of ways we can make connections. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure I just know the tip of the iceberg in the way that you can make connections with this kind of, this kind of uh, project, I think. No, no, and and I definitely agree with that. Um, because also, um, would you be able to speak uh, a bit about how you know how your book gets off the ground with a particular um, with a particular um, uh, 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 subjects um, that you're speaking about? Um, because when we talk about you know museums in Chicago, when we talk about museums just in general, I feel like a lot of times now with um, with the new Smithsonian. Um, a, a museum for uh, for uh, African American history and culture. Um, I, I feel like that has taken up so much of the oxygen um, that there's not enough for the other uh, museums as well. And obviously, we know, we know, we know Lonnie Bunch and everybody out there, you know, doing great, great work um, and bringing people to DC for to go check out that phenomenal obelisk. Um, but there, there's some there's some great areas that predated them too that that are doing some phenomenal work as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that that my book and other books uh, um, speak to is the kind of the history of even the sort of movements uh, that we're pushing for an institution like the Smithsonian Museum to finally occur. And like, I have a section in my book and it's sort of built on what other scholars like Mabel Wilson and um, Andrea Burns have, have written about. Um, they looked at uh, these efforts in the middle to late 1960s by people like Margaret Burroughs uh, and also Charles, Dr. Charles Wright from Detroit, who founded the um, Detroit, um, the Charles, what's now the Charles Wright Museum of African American History there. Um, they were both sort of key figures uh, in um, a consultation that actually happened with um, some government officials in the late sixties um, to that initially kind of envisioned the first sort of national museum of African-American history. And they, one of the major points that they made at these hearings um, and I outlined it a bit in my book as well uh, is, is that there needed to be uh, more public consultations with grassroots independent uh, museum organizations like the, 
Dusalva Museum in Chicago or the museum in Detroit um, that was started by Charles Wright and his associates there, uh, that there needs to be more consultation with these independent museum bodies um, for there to be, you know, uh, a, a more kind of just formation of a national or federal museum um, at the at the national level and something that, you know, obviously it took, you know, decades as you, as you, as you sort of alluded to there with Lonnie Bunch and, and the figures who were able to finally bring that institution into being. But I mean, you think about the amount of time that, that took place between the late sixties and now uh, for something like that to finally occur. And, you know, they were debating it then, but it was clear that there were tensions and, um, you know, unresolved uh, issues about how that, whole project would be formed and you know that's a whole other uh series of studies that could be done and um but it just in terms of understanding that there have been many of these independent museums that have existed you know for a long time that um that you know were built uh from the bottom up and connected to community and grassroots efforts at um you know public education at um uh, public history and and you know really advocating uh, a form of, uh, of civil rights, I think, in that moment um, as well. Like if you're thinking about the middle of the 20th century and the kind of um, things that were stacked against um, anyone who was trying to do something like that in that period of time. And, and with that as well, um, I think when we look at the, uh, the city of Chicago and in, in how, you know, your time frame, you know, being in the kind of like that middle like that, that late, I was say about about mid um, uh, 20th century time frame. There's so much going on. Um, you know, Chicago is such a center, right? People like Ida B. Wells and and Oscar DePriest and and others had been making major names of themselves um, through Chicago um, as well, and so. You know, Chicago had a particular vibrance uh, with with uh, with uh, with black folks there. Um, and so, you know, when we look at things like um, your first chapter curriculum reforms in World War Two, Chicago, um, what were what were some of the conversations that were being had um, in looking at not only them being activists within the World War II context, but also looking at what kind of curriculum reforms could they really drive? Because it seemed that so much of the resources and so much of the minds of many Americans and, you know, black and white at times as well, were very much focused on the World War II effort. And so would you be able to talk to us a bit about um, what those conversations were um, during that time frame about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, those curriculum reforms during the during the forties. I think, um, you know, it was it was important that they were happening in Chicago. I mean, Chicago was, um, you know, as you know, and as you already kind of pointed to, with the, the emergence of major public figures like Ida B. Wells, um, you know, came to Chicago from Memphis and um, the early twentieth century, and major, um, you know, activists against lynching and Oscar de Priest, um, you know. Uh, a major uh, local black politician, um, you know, it really, they came to kind of embody this, this long tradition of, uh, you know, like, uh, the growth of a black metropolis in Chicago and uh, you know, one of the major northern centers where people moved to over the course of the great migration periods, you know, World War One to uh, the Second World War. Um, and I think that 
you know, Chicago, uh, you know, had always been this kind of major site of, uh, of, of movement uh, and growth of uh, black American communities. And it was sort of um, through that period of, of history in World War II. And it was sort of natural for, uh, especially for uh, sort of knowledge production projects to kind of emerge out of that moment that were connected to, in part, as you said, the war effort, um, you know, uh, trying to present kind of a, uh, an American universalism or something like that in, in that in that period. Uh, and, you know, it made sense for people who were also advocating against discrimination in that moment to kind of use the wartime opportunity to kind of push for that further. Right. If you think about like the double victory campaigns, um, uh, that were waged by especially African-American newspapers in that same period, um, you know, fighting against fascism uh, in Europe as well as fascism in the United States uh, when it came to, like, Jim Crow segregation. And I think that, um, you know, having a curriculum reform project in a city like Chicago, uh, which, you know, had this vibrant also um, – black cultural renaissance that came out of the 1930s and 40s that also uh, meant that there were lots of people working on like um, cultural work, you know, literary um, um, uh, groups, uh, you know, uh, people putting on plays uh, uh, connected to, uh, you know, this really kind of vibrant intellectual community that was on the south side of Chicago. And I think that the uh, the people who were working on curriculum reforms like Madeline um, Stratton Morris, uh, and uh, her husband Sam uh, Sam Stratton, um, you know, were very much connected to that community. They were public school teachers on the South Side uh, in that period, uh, and um, you know, they were interested in you know changing the curriculum of the very schools that they taught in, uh, which of course at that time had to conform to this, you know, whatever standards were set by the Chicago uh, School Board and ultimately by uh, the state. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they needed to kind of work against that. And, but they were also emboldened by the kind of very vibrant um, um, uh, black cultural activism that, that persisted through that period that was, you know, really trying to use that wartime period as an opportunity to kind of push for, uh, for gains um, in terms of uh, anti-discrimination. I mean, it's also the period of like, you know, the first, uh, um, you know, the bluffed attempt at the March on Washington that led by Philip Randolph um, you know, desegregating defense industry. I mean, there's all kinds of things happening nationally where you can sort of set up the coordinates of activism in World War II and really that kind of opening wedge to the sort of long civil rights moment of the middle of the 20th century. And with that as well, um, you know, like you just mentioned, it seemed like all, all, all events pointed back to Chicago in, in some way. It was even going all the way back to the 1893 uh, Columbian Exhibition with uh, Douglas and Wells and, and other folks, too. And, and so, you know, Chicago has a long legacy of, of, of activism. Um, and, and so, you know, one thing that I thought was also interesting, too, um, you know, someone like uh, 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 Carter G. Woodson, right? You talk about curriculum reforms and such like that. One of the things that um, that struck me when I first started to learn about, you know, a lot of your um, early 20th century and mid 20th century historians, they were not just writing for the academy. A lot of them were writing curriculums for black teachers. Um, Yeah. And I I thought that that was something that was really uh, an intriguing portion to learn about, because you also have webs of that in your book, especially in this particular chapter. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm I'm really just sort of 
trying to sort of, uh, you know, convey the, the work that like really fat, important work done by um, Professor Pero Dagbovi on, you know, the, the black history movement as it emerges out of, you know, the 1910s and the whole efforts of Carter G. Woodson and his associates to build the, uh, what's now the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, which I think is the oldest or longest running African-American history organization in the country. And, uh, you know, just uh, the sort of networks of local people, uh, not only in Chicago, of course, it was built in Chicago initially and then moved to D.C., uh, but there were networks of people all across the country, mostly women, um, you know, uh, club women, uh, people who were school teachers, um, uh, who uh, started these like local history societies, um, you know, in, in all kinds of random places as well as big cities. Um, and, uh, you know, like you said, they were building these, um, you know, what were effectively public school curriculums. Like if you go back and watch the, um, or read the, uh, uh, old editions of the Negro history bulletin, um, you can get a sense of this because there, there's these, um, you know, write-ups on like local efforts at building, um, you know, local history societies or modules for public schools, um, uh, you know, right from the sort of early decades of the 20th century when, when um, uh, Carter G. Woodson's movement is kind of being built. And you see a lot of it in like the 30s, 40s, and 50s too, I think. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. I think it, it would be like a, a mine for future scholars to just keep looking at some of these local efforts and connecting the dots. And how did, um, and how did these teachers really bl- try to not only blend in the history, but also to build it? to also build in a component of, of cultural pride um, as well, because I thought that that was also something that I found um, cool to learn about was not only how, you know, you talk about the, the, the Negro history clubs and the black history clubs or um, the different uh, plays that went on. Right. Um, because I even remember reading that about um, Charlotte Fortin during the civil war down on the, uh, during, down in Port Royal, South Carolina, and how she's teaching her students about Toussaint Louverture, right? And how you know, in in the context of the eighteen of, of eighteen sixty three, you know, right in the confines of war, she's teaching students about you know Black history and and, and to say that yeah, Black folks have you know they there's more to our history than enslavement, though you know you shouldn't be necessarily ashamed of it, uh, but there's more to the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I'm sure that um, you could you could look at like Reconstruction era schools and find, um, you know, that there were people working on sort of alternative curriculum that wouldn't have been necessarily part of any kind of officially sanctioned, um, uh, you know, modules uh, that relate to, you know, uh, affirming black identities in, in moments of oppression, right? That, um, you know, especially coming out of the Civil War period, or you can think about um, you know, what Ida, Ida B. Wells was doing, like the 1890s, uh, you know, uh, anti-lynching campaigns and, and then connecting that to, um, you know, affirming uh, the identities and histories of, uh, of black Americans in the late 19th century. Um, so I think in any given moment, you can probably make uh, make the case that there are people who are working on similar, um, similar efforts to affirm, um, you know, these kinds of identities and, and perhaps even call it, you know, a form of... Um, uh, of public history or of, of history making. Um, and I think maybe that's the theoretical discussion you'd have is like, you know, uh, you know, at what point does it become like, uh, officially, 
um, a form of public history or a form of um, history making, right? I think that there's discussions we can have about that, but um, but I mean, uh, I, it doesn't seem like a lot of people make those connections, you know, in terms of um, understanding that people have been doing these kinds of things uh, under moments, especially of dress and, and incredible oppression, um, and continue to kind of work on projects that are similarly, you know, producing knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, and, and that's why I thought that this opening chapter was really a great way to um, introduce your topic um, because it allowed for, um, you know, myself and the other readers to be able to have a grounding with kind of the foundational levels um, because, you know, education at, is really at the foundation of it all. Um because for to be a public historian is about you know necessarily how do you educate a mass group that's you know not necessarily academic, but you're also not limited to them. Um, so so how do you make this information as palatable to your audiences? And so that could be a teacher, that could be someone that, like a like an interpreter, a docent. Um, and so I really appreciated that part. And then you also got to see some of the important figures like a like a, a, a was a Stratton. Uh, uh, Morris and and you had already talked about uh, um, uh, uh, Mrs. Burroughs as well, um, and so that I, that I thought was a phenomenal way to to really begin it. But then you also get to see some of how you know folks like uh, Du Bois, Woodson, Aptheker, you know these different historians, how they're kind of getting involved in this particular process too. And you see how politically this is very this is very vibrant too, because you have a lot of members of the left that are getting involved in these processes as well. Of the of the far left, of the radical left, I should say. Yeah, I feel like a lot of a lot of people realize there that it's like a strategic thing that they can get involved in, right? Like, in order to kind of further, you know, not necessarily their agenda, but like what they're politically committed to, right? Which is, you know, in, in for the case of many of these black leftists, is it's like fundamentally, um, you know, trying to reconstruct American society to, you know, advance um, social change um, beyond kind of a you know, a moderate level, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you, like you can you can make those, uh, uh, you can have those discussions about, you know, to what degree were people, if they were, you know, within, say, the, the communist left, were they, you know, following dictates from Moscow? And, um, you know, certainly that was true of many people who associated with uh, the radical left or the communist left through the middle decades of the 20th century. Um, and I think we need to be aware of that. But at the same time, a lot of these figures, you know, Paul Robeson, Du Bois, um, uh, Herbert Aptecker, um, uh, were, you know, also genuinely working on projects that were, you know, critically important to, um, you know, advancing uh, the cause of, um, you know, civil rights, uh, of, um, of social justice uh, in America. Um, you know, if you think of, like, Aptecker's studies on, like, slave rebellions uh, and, you um, you know, some of it we know now to be a bit embellished, but at the same time, it was really critical documentary, you know, primary source research that he did. And that kind of work is stuff that influenced some of these curriculum reformers that I looked at in the 40s. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think beyond influencing the historical profession has also, um, you know, uh, gone beyond the academy. And I think that, you know, people have been making these connections 
um, you know, in the public realm, um, uh, outside of the academy, and that's where that's where you know a lot of this uh, this work is is most important. I think a lot of these figures through this period, you know, the the major figures that are that are mentioned in my book, um, like Du Bois, who's working with the Afro American Heritage Association, and figures like Ishmael Flory, um, who was a South Side uh, Communist Party organizer. You know, I think Du Bois realized in this moment that um, you know these local organizations could make an impact. Uh, because they were at the grassroots level, they were working with um, with people, um, you know, on the ground rather than, um, you know, the groups like um, AMSAC, the uh, American Society for the Study of African Culture, which was that CIA-funded uh, organization. Um, you probably heard of them, and they, um, they, uh, you know, are, are very problematic in terms of how we how we conceive of them especially considering that it was like an arm of the state, um, you know, effectively because of being funded by the CIA. So Du Bois was well aware of this. And so he looked to, you know, other um, groups and institutions that were working, you know, that likely against that kind of agenda. Um, I think it's important to, that we have a sense of that, you know, those tensions and those, um, you know, diversity of tactics. And, you know, like I think there's some, you know, it's worth looking at AMSAC still and, and the people who were involved in it and the things that they produced um, because it's still part of this moment. It's part of like knowledge production in that period, but it's just to be aware that there was really, you know, a lot of tension in politics involved in this too that's connected to, you know, the Cold War politics of that period and, you know, different agendas and, you know, um, you know structures of power and how knowledge gets produced right so yeah du bois i for from from uh taking the cue from the work uh of uh dr chad williams at brandeis uh working with uh, du bois on the, on the first world war i think du bois had learned his lesson a long time ago with world war one about getting involved in anything government subsidized uh, uh when it came to this kind of deal where uh such high stakes <laughs> and so uh, self-esteem of, of black children is definitely high stakes when it comes to education. So I, I definitely would like I definitely think that he, he learned his lesson. Um, and then also um, getting into your next chapter, you know, we had mentioned about um, the disabled museum and and, uh, you know, it's uh, it's importance along with the the, the museum in, in Detroit as well. The Charles Wright, um, you know, you're, you're imagining a, a black museum in uh, Cold War, Chicago. Um, would you be able to set the scene of kind of like what was the origin story really of of what became the Disabled Museum and and how you know prior generations had kind of dreamed it into its actual existence and and and, and made it work? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I really kind of saw the the growth and the building of the museum as kind of connected to. Uh, the, the different efforts that especially Margaret Burroughs and her husband Charles Burroughs were doing uh, through the through the 1940s and 1950s uh, to kind of work on um, on education efforts on um, on public history efforts. Um, they were initially, um, especially Margaret Burroughs, was part of a uh, an organization. Um, uh, sorry, the name just escaped me. Uh, the National uh, Negro Museum uh, and Heritage Foundation, uh, which I argue in the book was a, was connected to the National Negro Congress, uh, which was uh, an important civil rights organization uh, that my friend Eric Gelman has written extensively about um, 
that emerged in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and it was, it was like a coalition of uh, black labor and civil rights leaders. Uh, many of them were leftists, but also included people like A. Philip Randolph, um, uh, who was a leftist, but obviously anti-communist. And uh, uh, so the uh, Museum and Heritage Foundation um, was kind of like a, one of the cultural um, arms of this organization, and it was active and it kind of expressed uh, the first vision for a museum in Chicago uh, in like the 1940s. Um, and then it really didn't get anything off the ground. It was just kind of imagining the museum and um, uh, Burroughs was a part of this and um, uh, Sam Stratton was a part of this organization. Um, uh, a number of other people who I, uh, who I mentioned in the book. Um, and so Burroughs, Burroughs never really kind of lost um, the desire to kind of build a museum, and she kind of took that vision for a museum uh, and kept it alive through the 1950s. Um, you know, uh, in partnership with her husband Charles uh, Burroughs, um, as well as other figures uh, like Eugene Feldman, who is a, a fascinating figure, a Jewish American background, who um, you know was basically an autodidact um, uh, in terms of Black history, uh, and really got involved with the building of the museum. Uh, and then a number of other figures um, helped to kind of. Uh, build the museum and launch it uh, finally in 1961 um, uh, as the uh, the Ebony Museum um, of uh, Black History and Art. Um, and so uh, that was the first name of it, and then it evolved eventually into took the name of uh, DuSablo, which was that um, you know the the first uh, settler of Chicago, a Haitian background, um, uh, who came in the uh, uh, the 18th century uh, to the city. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, that's sort of how that vision uh, for a museum got started uh, in Chicago. Um, and, uh, and I think that there are, you know, there are independent museums like this that have existed elsewhere in the country as well that still need to be kind of, their stories still need to be uh, told uh, as well. I can think of the Acostia Museum, I think, in, uh, in D.C. Um, there's the uh, uh, Freedom House Mural Snowden in, in Boston. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like, I mean, there's lots of, of museums. So the Zab Museum is not the only one, but I think it was arguably one of the the first to kind of, you know, sort of like build itself as an explicitly African American history museum, like devoted to history or as a museum. Um, whereas others, you know, uh, might have had other foci like, uh, you know, uh, repertoire theaters or um, you know, different, you know, cultural uh, forms that they emphasized. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, in a nutshell, where that vision is coming from, I think. And uh, it spans that, like, 1930s to 1960s long civil rights periodization. Um, and I think that uh, that's, that's where, uh, you know, I see the kind of origins of, of, that, um, of that particular vision for the museum. Um, and, you know, Margaret Burroughs is the key, the key figure here, of course. And so what, with the museum, what were some of the, uh, what were some of the difficulties and, and some of the challenges that were faced by uh, uh, Margaret Burroughs and, and the rest of the uh, staff at, at the DuSable uh, Museum? Um, because, you know, it's, it, it, it seems like there was a, there, there was some resistance at times uh, uh, to what they, what, what they were trying to do there. Totally. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, during the 1950s, before they actually got the museum off the ground, um, 
you know, uh, Margaret Burroughs was a part of, uh, you know, a group that actually tried to form a chapter of the, um, uh, of Asala, which uh, then was called the Association of the Study of Negro Life and History. So they tried to, like, uh, restart a chapter there. There hadn't been a chapter since the uh, 1930s, um, like, a, a, like a consistently running chapter. Um, and uh, they actually had their application for a, a local chapter blocked, um, uh, by a, uh, uh, a local club woman uh, in the city uh, who basically opposed the, uh, um, the effort to establish this chapter and uh, on, on, I think, what were basically ideological reasons. Um, and uh, this was something that, uh, you know, it meant that there wasn't really an active chapter over the course of the 1950s of the ASNLH. And, uh, you know, I think it was uh, indicative of the kind of opposition that, um, you know, the particular group uh, that Margaret Burroughs was associated with, which was more to the left of the political spectrum. Um, you know, Margaret Burroughs had close associations with black communists. She herself, I think, was what we could call a fellow traveler, someone who, uh, you know, was sympathetic to the left or the far left. Um, you know, I think that they um, they faced uh, repression. Um, uh, you know, she was a school teacher uh, on, as well on the south side, and um, she actually got in trouble with the uh, uh, the school board as well as with um, Southside Community Arts Center, which was another um, really important uh, cultural institution on the south side that had a board of directors in the 1950s that was becoming increasingly conservative and, you know, wanted to... Um, prevent people like her from having influence on the sort of programs of the, um, the cultural center. Um, so, you know, in the different uh, areas of her life where she was working and, and being an activist when it came to being a, uh, an artist and an educator, um, she was being, she was facing challenges and she eventually had to go to, uh, she took a, a sabbatical, um, which was her, what she was entitled to as a school teacher in, in Chicago, uh, took a year off, uh, went to Mexico and, painted and learned uh, with some uh, radical Mexican artists. Um, and I think, you know, with all these experiences, she was also, uh, you know, uh, surveyed and um, monitored by the FBI over this period and uh, Chicago Red Squads, uh, which were like the local arm of um, security state and during the Cold War period in a lot of American cities. And of course, uh, black Americans were um, especially targeted, um, you know, regardless of their ideology. Um, during this period, and, and she faced all of these kinds of challenges, um, uh, and I, you know, continued to do what she was doing, which is trying to educate young people, trying to make a difference uh, in the community. And she always maintained her connections back in Chicago, and came back from her experience in Mexico in the um, early and mid fifties, and uh, you know, got right back to work at sort of envisioning this this museum that had never um, never been built yet, uh, the one that the um, uh, that had been uh, first envisioned during um, the activism period of the National Negro Congress in like the 40s. That she'd been involved in that period as well. She was much younger and just starting out as a school teacher. Uh, but through you know all these challenges during the early Cold War, um, she just kept that vision alive. And uh, um, you know these friends of, and associates of hers encouraged her, and they were able to. Um, eventually uh, rent out a coach house on uh, South Michigan Avenue uh, that they uh, converted into the first sort of workable space to uh, to build this museum in. And it's just really kind of fascinating that they were able to, you know, maintain that vision despite the, 
the challenges and the political opposition they had to, you know, forming local black history groups or, you know, um, getting um, alternative curriculum into their classrooms or, you know, trying to do art projects on the South Side that, um, you know, were avant-garde or were kind of against the grain. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's, uh, you know, I had this fascinating source from um, this uh, uh, college instructor in Chicago named St. Clair Drake, who was, you know, mm-hmm. a, an icon as well of, of African studies. Um, and at that time, he was a college instructor at Roosevelt University and, you know, really, really sharp mind and, and really kind of in tune with what was happening. And, um, you know, he was observing the sort of tensions of the Cold War period, especially, and, you know, what was happening to uh, the radical left. And I think he he felt that there were some people who were being channeled into um, black history efforts. And uh, from his point of view, this was, this was kind of, you know, uh, it meant that they were broken and beaten. They were being surveyed by the state. Um, but I actually think that because they kept their vision alive of what they were trying to do, that they were actually kind of emboldened by these experiences, especially if you look about look at what happened after in terms of the building of these institutions, especially the Dissolve Museum. Um, so it's, yeah, I guess I kind of disagreed with, uh, with Drake in that one moment, even though, you know, most of his scholarship is incredibly important, of course, um, and, you know, impacts, uh, you know, so much else. Uh, but I, I thought it was just helpful as well that he made that comment about uh, these black leftists who'd gone in for the study of black history. Um, and, uh, you know, that to me really struck me as like, well, that's a, that's kind of like a, uh, you know, that sort of golden nugget you, you look for as a historian, like, okay, so that, that makes sense. That makes sense why all these people are not necessarily like, you know, continuing to be involved in like the civil rights movement out on the streets or in the labor movement, for example, right, where a lot of the Cold War repression was really coming down hard through that period, right, early 50s. Um, uh, people, you know, uh, if they were going to advocate for civil rights had to be also, you know, advocating for, you know, pro-Americanism, right, or something like that. So, um, you know, just thinking about what this group of people who uh, were active in the 40s um, were doing to kind of negotiate that early Cold War period and to keep doing, you know, social activism and um, uh, social justice activism. And it's really wild to me how the surveillance state, you know, is very central to a lot of the uh, productions of history right now and how a lot of folks are writing about the 20th century like yourselves and they're incorporating uh, records from the surveillance state. Um, so, so I think that like I had that epiphany when you were speaking before and I was just like, oh, shoot, like that's good. It's kind of wild. Like, you know, she was in Mexico and you know about the story of uh, Lorraine Hansberry's father who goes to Mexico as well. And so, you know, obviously Hansberry name is very important to the city of Chicago in so many ways. So I thought that part was also something that was pretty intriguing, especially when we talk about, um, you know, people trying to revise history who are a lot of times the people who are inhibiting history uh, in, in the way that this surveillance state had its tentacles into so many different things. It was really pervasive in this period and like it affected a lot of people's lives and labors. And, um, you know, it had this, uh, uh, you know, this, this effect on, uh, you know, the, the shape of uh, the civil rights movement uh, as it was emerging, reemerging in the 1950s. Uh, you know, uh, sort of the Cold War civil rights narrative, like scholars like Mary Dudziak have written about, and um, uh, 
um, you know, Carol Anderson, I think really well. Those are critical works. Um, uh, but I like to, you know, especially in, in my work, I've tried to incorporate the perspectives of, of scholars who've been trying to kind of push against that that framework as well, like um, Mary Helen Washington. Um, you know, I'm looking at on my bookshelf right now, The Other Blacklist, which is a great book um, that kind of really speaks to exactly, you know, what you're just talking about with the, the effect of the security state on, on um, you know, black left cultural workers going through that early Cold War period and what they were doing to kind of, you know, continue to engage in cultural struggles and political struggles. Uh, there's also like Bill Mullen's work, um, uh, and uh, James Smethurst, who's written a lot on like the origins of the Black Arts Movement, um, I think makes a lot of these connections. And you know, he's done some some work on um, you know the the effect of the security state on a lot of these movements. Um, and but he he's one of these scholars as well that 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 is trying to make and look at these connections between this earlier period, the 30s and the 40s. Uh, with the uh, you know fifties and the sixties, that sort of long civil rights uh, narrative that you know Jacqueline Dowd Hall wrote about, you know, which is well over ten years ago now, um, and uh, you know I think that scholars are continuing to kind of make those those connections and and kind of uh, further try to try to kind of uh, complicate the sort of received narratives of like you know the traditional um, periodization of the, of the civil rights movement, you know, like the fifties and the sixties, um, which of course is, is still there and it's not to discount it. Um, you know, you can see how things really accelerated at a certain point after Supreme court finally revises Plessy versus Ferguson. But like, um, but it took a whole lot of other people working behind the scenes for decades before that, for that, to get to that point, even with the, if you look at the NWCP activism that had been going on for decades, uh, prior, right? So, Mm-hmm. And 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 for me, one of my I, I would say my favorite chapter, if if you you know make me choose, you know I I would choose your third chapter. Um, and and if you don't mind, I've actually never done this for a program, but I want to do something different on this one. Um, on page seventy five at the at the board, bottom portion, do you mind if I read a portion that I thought was my favorite portion? Very good. Um, and so, and I quote, indeed, the stated purpose of organizations such as the Afro-American Heritage Association and much of their educational efforts was to promote accessible black history in the community that clearly stated how U.S. history to that point largely alighted black American contributions to the nation. Moreover, by advancing a radical revisionist analysis of U.S. history, one that indicated the role white supremacy and racial ideologies played in the promotion of such faulty views of the past, the AAHA and its allies hoped they could encourage the development of a radical political consciousness among the city's African-American working class. That right there blew me away. I was like, that is exactly, in my eyes, the point of it, things like public history um, and, and not only, you know, public history, black history, but also activism as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what that's what those figures uh, like Christine Johnson and Ishmael Flory were trying to do in that time. Right. Like Christine Johnson uh, had she was the principal of the Nation of Islam uh, for a period of time, um, the Nation of Islam University in Chicago. 
Um, and, you know, before that, she'd had, you know, connections to the black popular front. So she wasn't someone that was fully in the mold of like the, the cultural nationalism of, you know, the leaders of the Nation of Islam. And there's lots of figure. I think there's lots of new studies now in the Nation of Islam that have, you know, complicated that uh, organization's history. So beyond just this kind of conservative cultural nationalism that often gets, um, you know, reproduced and, um, uh, you know, most conventional histories, right? Um, but, you know, figures like Christine Johnson, who are working locally on the ground, were advancing these kind of uh, really innovative um, visions of the role of public history and, and education at the grassroots level uh, that was outside of the arm of the state, outside of, you know, surveillance, um, and that was uh, trying to also revise um, American history from the bottom up, right? Like, you know, um, fully cognizant of some of the most innovative uh, scholarship that was existing in that time, like Du Bois and, uh, and, and others who were, had, you know, had done so much to revise like the, um, you know, the plantation models of, uh, you know, like the history of slavery and stuff like that. Um, you know, and they were putting this at, at the grade, at the public school grade level, right. Um, to, you know, have for, for kids to learn about. And uh, I think that, you know, from the 21st century, we can look at some of the modules and think, well, that's pretty, pretty, um, you know, it's just sort of creating sort of heroes and it's too simplistic. But in fact, in that moment, you know, if you looked at the average American history textbook in a, in a public school, uh, there wasn't anything like that in that curriculum. So the fact that these people were doing these kinds of, um, uh, educational efforts in that moment is uh, I argue was was pretty groundbreaking and um, you know they didn't have a lot of support for it at that time as was evidenced by you know how how small the uh, Afro-American Heritage Association was and and the kind of surveillance that it underwent Um, but at the same time um, you know it was it was doing something incredibly important and uh, um, you know was really kind of a repertoire of the overall picture of civil rights uh struggles in that period and also um in 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 that particular chapter and in later chapters you talk about the importance of uh chicago's black arts movement and also the importance of really uh in your cultural fronts and public history activism portion you talk about arts and politics as well and you know you got you you the 1940s, late 1940s and 1950s, going in the 60s, there's so much going on. You know, Robeson, Belafonte, Potier, you know, Hansbury. There's so much happening as far as arts and politics that it, it, it just, you know, you cannot, you know, you can't, you can't really even speak about it enough about the importance of, you know, figures like that in trying to raise the consciousness of black community members. Would you be able to speak upon that as well and how it intersected as well with, with the Disable uh, Museum? Sure. Like, are we talking about sort of um, like people who were like cultural icons through that period who were kind of making an impact at the community level? Right, right. I was just giving them as like the the more uh, uh, more commonly associated, but also about how just in general, the Chicago um, Black Arts Movement and also the the individuals on the ground and how they worked with um, the, the Disciple Museum and other uh, in other areas of, of black heritage and such like that as well and in production. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, the work that went into building the Saab Museum, you know, came out of, you know, 
the prior efforts of uh, figures like Margaret Burroughs and um, you know her, a lot of her her close friends and associates from Gaydon, um, a number of others uh, uh, were all sort of uh, you know they were all active in the black what's called the Black Chicago Renaissance in the 30s uh, and the 40s and, and right through parts of the 50s. Uh, and they helped build organizations like the Southside Community Arts Center, which had been established during the New Deal period. And, and uh, you know, they were, it was a vibrant um, literary and cultural scene that rivaled, um, you know, the, the Harlem Renaissance in New York in terms of scope and size. Uh, but it's sort of not as well known. Um, and I think that it, uh, it had a big impact as well on the sort of ability of a, a lot of the people who'd been involved in that movement of that Renaissance. Uh, Anne Mace Neufer has written a lot about this, uh, as well as um, uh, Darling Clark Hine. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of these, the people who'd been involved in that, uh, that cultural Renaissance, many of them were, were women, uh, you know, continued to work on cultural uh, activism right through this period. And I think that's that kind of milieu is what Lorraine Hansberry is kind of, also coming out of because she, you know, having grown up in Chicago, she would have been very cognizant of, um, of that, that cultural milieu. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, very kind of uh, aware of it. I mean, always, I think about the, her iconic play Raisin in the Sun and how it's sort of, um, you know, I've listened to this old interview that she did, um, right around the time that it was first staged on Broadway, and she's reflecting about how how it, it was a product specifically of like a Southside Chicago uh, family's experience, right? You know, partly autobiographical and all that, as you know. And uh, and you know, I think that her sensibilities also connected uh, in in making such an iconic play was also connected to um, you know the the marvelous growth of these uh, these cultural institutions. Uh, that had maintained themselves in black Chicago through that period. And like, that's gets back to what we were talking about earlier with the sort of significance of, you know, the black metropolis in Chicago and the sort of cultural and, um, uh, uh, well, the institutional presence of, of, um, of, of organizations, of businesses, um, of, uh, um, you know, uh, churches uh, of, you know, like a bricks and mortar presence uh, that had mm-hmm. been in the city for such a long, long time. And I think that that has an imprint um, on why these cultural labels were, were possible uh, through this period, right? So, you know, even on people who were on the radical left could still maintain themselves because there was such an institutional presence. Like thinking of Jeff Helgeson's work here too um, on um, on sort of uh, community formation through, through this period and um, sort of the connections between civil rights activism and like, um, you know, building black businesses, um, uh, you know, through... Um, the growth of Black Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or Christopher Reed, Christopher Reed's work. Um, you know, there's there's uh, you know this connects to like obviously a huge body of scholarship um, just on Chicago, um, and uh, um, you know I think that these educational efforts would not have been possible had there not been that that sort of longstanding uh, institutional presence of of you know independent organizations and businesses and um, spaces that were uh, that enabled these kinds of things to take place um, in the context of like you know an otherwise fairly repressive Cold War um, you know Jim Crow America. Yeah, and so can you also speak a bit about how um, you had 
the in the in the later portion of the civil rights movement in the late sixties and how the DuSable Museum was kind of like a bridge between the old guard civil rights movement folks um, and also like the younger generational folks that would have gone into the uh, Black Panther Party and and folks like uh, Henry uh, Henry Hampton and uh, not Henry Hampton that's for for something else but for uh, for, for for Fred Hampton rather uh, could you speak about kind of like how the the museum helped to bridge those divides as well and to show even more why it's an important institution Yeah, for sure. I mean, like um, you know, they, it's not like the museum was like hosting Black Panther uh, meetings or anything like that. But I think that they were making they were making connections to like younger generations who were involved in the kind of black power activism that we see coming out of the mid to late sixties. So, you know, uh, figures like, um, Haki Matabuti, uh, who founds third world press that ultimately, you know, like a key, a figure of the black arts movement in Chicago, he's mentored very closely by uh, Margaret and Charles Burroughs. In fact, she's, I think he's written a lot recently and, and talked a lot recently about those connections. Um, and, um, you know, uh, figure like Sterling Stuckey, who is also, you know, not really necessarily part of that black power generation, but, um, you know, younger in the early 1960s is very influenced um, by uh, Margaret and Charles Burroughs and goes on to be, you know, one of the, you know, key figures in the founding of African-American studies uh, through, you know, the late 60s, 70s uh, and onwards. Uh, and, you know, so, like you can find lots of connections like this back to the museum and the cohort of people that, that kind of built it through the early 60s. And, you know, I think they're also, uh, you know, it's also connected to the kind of programs that they devise for, for young people, right? There's efforts to kind of get a lot of school kids to come and visit the museum. Uh, there's like prisoner outreach programs in the late 60s, which are really fascinating um, that I think connect really well with, you know, people who are uh, becoming active in like, you know, combating police violence um, and, uh, you know, uh, making connections with people who are uh, criminalized in the, in the prison, uh, in the criminal justice system and like uh, enabling their education, of course. And like, um, you know, like that's a, that's the kind of thing that, you know, is still totally relevant today. And like they were doing it in like the sixties. Right. And uh, um, it's, um, you know, it's just, there's all, all, a lot of connections to the sort of younger generations that we see in that um uh, especially in that like fourth chapter, um, uh, you know, especially black arts movement, uh, uh, figures, uh, people who were involved in kind of, uh, you know, production of murals in South side of Chicago, which, um, you know, uh, are obviously very important for a uh, form of like artistic production in the, the black, uh, power era. Um, you think of the, the wall of respect, uh, which was a really iconic mural that was removed by the daily administration in the early, early seventies. Um, you know, there, there were connections with some of the artists who were involved in, um, you know, uh, organizations like Afro-Cobra um, uh, and, and Black Hearts Movement organizations in Chicago that, again, had connections to uh, that kind of older, uh, older guard leftists uh, like Margaret Burroughs and, and others who were um, part of, um, you know, continuing to do and support that kind of work you know, right through the 60s. And, you know, the whole sort of growth of the museum through that period, I think, is connected to those intergenerational collaborations. Um, you know, the book tries to tell that uh, part of that story. And also with, with the last couple minutes that we do have you, um, would you be able to talk to us a bit about kind of like the 
obviously the the museum is still around and 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 the story is still being being told but as someone who's written this particular story what is in your mind one of the important legacies of this particular period um so the about the civil rights activism from world war ii into the cold war as this story is being told through the black public history uh, uh activist uh, uh group that that we spoke about throughout our interview what, what do you think their legacy should be to folks i think it's probably just like the importance of like maintaining uh independent cultural and political organizations during periods of like repression and austerity like um you know we're in a period now uh where public ed- education is under attack everywhere and like public schools are getting closed uh, as well as like ongoing instances of basically like the criminalization of of, of black and brown life uh you know across north america um you know anti-immigrant at uh, xenophobia and racism and so having sort of independent cultural institutions that are not going to be sort of beholden to like a large um uh, power body whether it's like the um, federal government especially under the trump administration uh or um uh you know a large uh, university or corporation like i mean lots of good can happen within universities but um you know just having kind of grassroots independent organizations that are built from the ground up that can continue to do these kind of labors, I think is the lesson for the, the current moment um, and kind of maintaining them. And I think the Dassault Museum has faced challenges on that front, you know, especially through the late 20th century. And uh, I, myself and other scholars have written about that and, um, you know, maintaining kind of uh, institutional solvency and it, but I think it'll continue to survive. And as other institutions that are, that are independent, um, will continue to survive, but people need to support them. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the lessons of the current moment is that, you know, energy needs to be put into the local and the sort of grassroots, um, to keep, um, keep these kinds of things going. Um, you know, because, because of what's happening, the austerity, um, that's happening around us in the world. Most definitely. And, um, and also, can you tell us with, uh, with, with this amazing, amazing book, um, you know, we, we, we get a little greedy uh, on the New Books and African-American Studies channel where, you know, we have such phenomenal authors and historians on our, on our, on our, uh, on our, on the program. We want to know when to expect them back and maybe a little bit of a, uh, a, a look into what the next project might be for you. So with that being said, would you mind telling us now that this project is over, what, what can we look forward to in the future for you, Ian? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I could be included among the pantheon of amazing authors that you've had and, uh, and books, but <laughs> I'm just glad to be part of the conversation and, and appreciative to have my book, uh, talked about in this, this great podcast series you have. Um, and, uh, you know, I learned a lot, you know, from, from listening to your podcasts and then, you know, go back, going back to the catalog, it'll be really, really helpful for, uh, for those of us who are continuing to try and work on, on projects. And, uh, if I'm able to get to a next project outside of my teaching schedules, uh, I'm working on a new project that relates to, um, uh, sort of uh, racial inequality in um, in Chicago and other uh, American cities uh, connected to, um, sort of, uh, uh, what I view as kind of like a, a Catholic anti-racism. Um, you know, there's a lot of Catholic communities, and especially in the urban north, that were very violently racist, uh, especially to uh, southern migrants, southern black migrants as they were moving up 
um, during the Great Migration. Uh, and so I'm trying to look at my study. My new study is going to look at people who were um, trying to kind of resist that racism uh, from within the Catholic community. So I'm interested in connections between like um, religious identity uh, and anti-racism, uh, and then also, you know. Catholic forms of racism, uh, which existed in the, in the urban north that were different than in the south. So it's kind of a different project than what I was doing before, but I think it connects to, uh, you know, people who were interested in social change and um, during the same period in, uh, in American history. Very well then. And so with that project, we're definitely uh, looking forward to once uh, once it materializes and get, it gets published, we'll, we'll definitely have you on for a, a return visit to uh, the New Books Network's African-American Studies channel. And so thank you again for being on the program today. And, um, and we definitely look forward to having you on uh, uh, once your teaching schedule, you know, gets, you know, t- get, get, gets taken care of as we, we, we all know how that goes. And so we totally understand. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we definitely appreciate you for your time. And we definitely want to have you on again uh, w- when the time is conducive. For sure. Thanks so much, Adam. I really appreciate the, the time you took. Most definitely. And so once again, uh, New Books in African-American Studies listeners, we have had on the podcast today, Dr. Ian Roxborough-Smith, who teaches North American and Global History at the University of the Fraser Valley and Douglas College in British uh, uh, Columbia. And so once again, we had him on because of his phenomenal book published this year through our friends at the University of Illinois Press entitled Black Public History in Chicago, Civil Rights Activism from World War II into the Cold War. Until next time, New Books and African-American Studies listeners, I am your host, Adam McNeil. Over and out.